Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is dedicated to helping pain physicians understand how to most effectively integrate orthobiologics treatments, also known as regenerative medicine, into their practice. Dr. Verma informed me that regenerative medicine is not the appropriate term, so we'll use orthobiologics going forward. There's a lot of interesting economic considerations as it relates to you know, the patient experience and payer approval and FDA approval and a number of unique hurdles that you're going to want to be aware of as a physician. So hopefully today helps you to have a very the very beginnings of context to understand what questions you need to ask if you want to go down this path. If you go to the show notes, APM success slash 116, you'll find a host of resources there provided by Dr. Verma if you want to get started on thinking about how to do this in your own practice. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy this week's great episode with Dr. Verma. Hello and welcome to episode 116 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by my friend, Dr. Nikhil Verma. Dr. Verma is a board-certified physiatrist. He is North American Spine Society Fellowship graduate in interventional spine and musculoskeletal health. He's also the member community co-chair of regenerative medicine for the AAPMNR. And it is about that last role, regenerative medicine, that he is here today to share with us from his experience. Dr. Verma, thanks for joining. Thanks, Justin. I appreciate you having me on. I know that uh, I've been listening to your podcast for well over a year now, so really excited to actually be on and try to see if we can share some information and try to learn a little bit more from each other. Yeah, awesome. I, I'm always encouraged to hear someone besides my mother listens to my podcast, so it's always great to hear. <laughs> to start us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your current what your current practice looks like? Yeah, so I uh, graduated from residency and from Brooklyn, New York at Kingsborough Jewish Medical Center. I was there for my clinical rotations during med school as well. So been involved with physiatrists in, that, in the East Coast for quite some time. And then I had this passion to go into sports medicine, but the more and more I got deeper into my residency training, I kind of got drawn to the interventional world where I could do more with the spine and add in other interventions that might not be available for traditional sports medicine fellowships. That landed me in Birmingham, Alabama for my fellowship. And it was, as you said, a NAS accredited program, got great hands-on training, high procedure load, learned lots and lots of stuff in just over a year, probably more stuff that I still needed to learn, but it was a great experience overall. And it was a great experience because I really wanted to get passionate in back into that sports medicine and regenerative medicine world that I kind of was introduced to during residency. So it was a good way to kind of bring everything full circle and allow me to grow in that field. So when you say regenerative medicine, this is something I'm obviously not a doctor. So this to me could mean anything. <laughs> so maybe briefly describe what you're talking about when you say regenerative medicine. I guess you did also ask kind of how my practice is set up. So we can kind of go there before we go into that. So after my fellowship, uh, the job market was very tough, probably related to the COVID-19 situation that was going on nationwide. There weren't a lot of great job opportunities out there. And either it was location wasn't right or 
the setting wasn't right. And it was no fault besides that, that I can really put my finger on. Somewhere along the lines, I decided to, to apply for locums and use my locums income to try to fund my own practice. So I've been in the works of starting my own practice for about 12 months now, started halfway uh, towards the end of fellowship. And then I kind of went more ahead on each month after that. So about March is when I started seeing my own patients and using locums to fund that. And now a whole different service line that I'm providing besides the interventional pain, interventional spine, musculoskeletal health is providing regenerative medicine for patients. So this easily transitions into what you're asking is, you know, what is regenerative medicine? It's the big, fancy, sexy word. Everyone wants to hear what it does, what it doesn't do. So several years ago, people were interested in the whole concept of regenerative medicine and where we can use our own biological growth factors or drive products from our own bodies and use those to regenerate our own cells. With that being said, as the studies kind of go on, we realize that we don't really regenerate cells. But what we do is provide an environment to allow the current cellular structures to grow, to get better support, to improve the conditions in that area. Got it. So I want to make a brief aside. So you described sort of the context of your current practice, and I'll just make one observation and then we can move on. But the way that you're doing this, I have been an admirer of since you and I have become friends. And I think it's really smart to be able to, if you envision like a seesaw and income from different sources, if you're interested in launching a practice and you're able to do it while you're earning locum, while you're earning locums income to do it while you have a high locums load and a low practice, you know, patient volume. And then over time that seesaw shifts, you have more and more patients in your practice and your locum decreases until you don't need it anymore. I think that is really wise. <laughs> and so uh, props to you for being so thoughtful in the way that you've approached that. I appreciate it. It's, I've had a lot of help and a lot of advice over the way. I'm still learning, which is great. Um, I'm still trying to even find some locums positions just to see, to balance that seesaw a little bit more. But I know exactly, as you said, eventually that seesaw is going to need a tip and I'm going to need to walk away from locums. When that point comes, I'll, I'm just happy with all the resources that I've had up to this point. I really like LinkedIn. It's the only social media that I can really tolerate. <laughs> when it comes to regenerative conversations, we'll say, I, I know enough to know that I'll say there are some types of treatments, some perhaps categories of treatment that are hotly contested and certain types of, uh, you know, certain data is debatable or uh, disputed in some cases and some purveyors of what we would call regenerative medicine, you can put it in air quotes this time, perhaps have less credibility than others. So talk about how you sort of see the landscape and are there any areas that are, we'll say, if we could charitably describe it as perhaps a little more disputed or why is it, why does it feel like there's some snake oil people out there as well as some very conscientious and well-trained practitioners? Yeah. So I think that's a fantastic question. And I think we should backtrack a little bit mainly for compliance sake, if anyone out there is interested in this field, myself included, we should really walk away from using the term regenerative medicine. That would imply that we're actually regenerating tissues, 
Now, whether that does or doesn't happen, that's not for me to say. Some studies say they do based on imaging. Most studies say they don't in actual in vivo in the body. But so we try to stay away from that term. And most people that are thinking about this conscientiously are trying to go towards the term orthobiologics. Most of these orthobiologics, they are approved for the FDA for support and structure in orthopedic surgeries. Now that they have an FDA approval for that indication, now any physician can really take that indication and kind of do their own studies based off of that. And they can kind of use off-label use. And that's kind of where the whole gray area starts coming into a fuzzy picture because we don't have the high level studies for that yet. They're working on it. We have some. And with that being said, anyone can come out with any orthobiologic and say, oh, yeah, this is FDA approved. The CMS is going to pay you for this. Well, we know that's not true. We just try to, people just start injecting here, this, that, or wherever they want to inject it without any clinical indication. And that's where the, like, all right, now we're talking about snake oil salespeople. Let's stay away from that. So if this is an area of some regulatory oversight, how is it that everyone can say we're FDA approved and that can only be true of some purveyors of these products? Exactly. So I think that's where the difference between conscientious physicians and providers that are trying to do the right thing will further separate themselves for those individuals who are oh, I have a license to do this so I can do it. So you're saying from the standpoint of the, the physician saying that rather than the, the company saying that? Yeah. I see. Okay. And I would argue, and I've actually seen this, that a lot of these salespeople with these companies, they actually don't know the rules. They don't know the laws. They come to you with all this data and these fancy words, this, that. And then once you start asking about the FDA indications and you ask them for the the 501k pathway or this other pathway I've written down, just slipping the top of my head right now. There's another pathway for FDA trials, essentially. And if, and when they look at you with a blank face, then you're like, okay, maybe it's time to walk away from someone in this company. So if something is FDA approved, does FDA approval mean that it would also be reimbursed by the CMS and or commercial payers, or is there a gap there? Or is it most of the time it's the same, but it takes a while perhaps for payers to catch up? Definitely not. Yeah. So just because something is FDA approved does not mean that you will get reimbursed for this. So that's first and foremost, I think everyone should know. Second off, just because it's FDA approved doesn't mean it's indicated for that indication. So for the prime example would be like knee osteoarthritis. 10 years ago, there was no FDA indication for it. Over the years, it became a support structure during orthopedic surgery, not like as an independent injection. So FDA will now approve, has now has since approved, and a lot of payers will pay during a surgery, but they won't pay if someone is going to just inject a knee with PRP. Even though many physicians could perhaps be able to do that under their own sort of judgment because of the, you know, the evidence that exists for the utility in this case. So that's definitely what we're doing. That's kind of where we are in the wild west. Physicians, we kind of feel like, okay, there is a clinical indication for this. We feel supported by knee osteoarthritis. It's starting to become level one evidence. 
There was just a study that came out recently. Uh, Dr. Bowers down at Emory showed that the, it's efficacious, efficacious again in NEOA compared to other things. At least he's the one that brought it to my attention. If he was the actual author of it, I'm not sure. You know, like anything else, there's tons of uh, authors out there for lots of things. Yeah, so that clinical indication does say that we can do it. And now we just have to do our due diligence to tell the patients at this time, it's not FDA approved for this condition. There are risks involved and it won't be covered by insurance companies. So it's usually an out-of-pocket payment. Got it. And so- I'm interested on that point in particular. One of the things to me that's interesting about regenerative or I guess orthobiologic treatments is the reimbursement component. So this is very important to patients to understand how much is this going to cost me and to try to understand that in advance as much as possible. And a lot of these types of treatments are, it sounds like cash pay only. So this is a circumstance which if you're thinking about your payer mix as a physician who owns a practice, you got this these commercial payers over here, you got your government payers, and then there's some portion of cash pay, this would be in that third category. So how are you, how, how are physicians communicate? First of all, like, how do you pick a price or understand the cost and the price? And how would you communicate that to a, a patient? So I should start with saying that some insurances actually do are starting to pay for some of these procedures. So that's first and foremost, as a physician, if for me, I want to protect myself, I will go ahead and submit that to the insurer just in case if they come back and say, we will not pay for it. Hey, no problem. We kind of knew this was coming up. But for example, some of the military insurances are starting to pay for it for tendonitis, tendinopathy, arthritis. And you don't want to void your contract with that payer by doing a procedure that is a covered procedure. You charge cash for it. So that's something that people need to be aware of. And now in the landscape of pricing, that is very a delicate subject because I don't think any physician really wants to share how much or how little they're charging for these kind of things. So a lot of it's through the word of mouth that you hear from patients. And it's all based on the structure of how much does this kit cost? So that's one portion that goes into the pie. How much does it cost for my supplies and my employees? And then you have to factor in how much time does it cost for me? And then the next step would kind of be talking about how invasive is it? Is it just a simple blood draw spin down? Or is it something more invasive like a bone marrow draw for a bone marrow concentrate injection? And then outside that, you kind of look at what are the long-term benefits? You know, That would be the way, the ethical way that I see it is, okay, if I do this PRP injection and it lasts you two to three years, then that's costing, you don't have to come see me for those knee injections every three to four months which would reimburse X amount. So then you kind of justify, okay, so two to three years, how can I justify the cost savings over that time? And if I can prevent a knee, knee surgery, which sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, sometimes they just prolong it, but that's all the kind of things you factor in. Got it. It's funny because what you're describing, as I'm sort of thinking about this calculation that a physician is doing, basically what you're describing is the RVU calculation with, which CMS would publish, which is we have these components, one component for the geography, which is sort of the, the multiplier at the beginning. And then we've got one for physician labor, how much skill of yours does it take? One for practice overhead, which is keeping the lights on and paying the person at the front desk. And then one for the malpractice liability based on invasiveness. So it's, it's a very similar track, which actually makes a lot of sense. It sounds like in this circumstance, it's kind of left to the physician to try to put these pieces together and understand what's best for their practice. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's and that's precisely how I value mine 
And that's pretty much the conversation I have with the patient. I break it down and you look at that big paycheck or the big pay price tag and some patients will be kind of put off by that. But you kind of explain these steps and then they start justifying in their own minds like, oh, well, if I don't have to take the $30,000 surgery because all my co-pays, all the x-rays, MRIs, follow-ups, PT, you kind of take all that out. Now you're talking about a few thousand dollars and might be more worth it in their mind. If you think about the sort of population of pain physicians out there, how many would you say, maybe if we think about like fellowship training, whatever the most useful sort of subset is of this population of like doctors that we would feel comfortable going to. And I, there's so, I guess, I don't even know if this description is helpful because I don't know how we would stratify everyone who says that they do pain versus the people who we would actually want to go to. It's the same in my world with financial advisors. There's a bajillion of them, but very few are relatively real practitioners. But of all of the interventional pain docs out there, what percentage of them have familiarity with and would offer these to patients? Is it like the vast majority are doing some of this orthobiologic work or is it a very small subset that's perhaps growing? That's a tough question for me to answer because I'm kind of exposed into different worlds, especially I'm more in the sports medicine world. I know a lot of physical therapists, chiropractors, and that kind of stuff. So even family practice doctors that are doing this. So I would say in any community, any physician that's been recently trained in these are trying to incorporate it into their practice in some capacity. You know, in the state of Ohio, as much as I asked around, there's probably another 10 or 15 physicians that I know of that are doing it. And then maybe another 10 or 15 practices outside that. And that's in the central Ohio region. But that, that doesn't mean there couldn't be more, there couldn't be less. It's hard for me to say. There are practices that will hire nurse practitioners and PAs to come out and do the diagnosis and kind of recommend what they would do. And then the physician would just do the injection. Now, whether they be trained with fluoroscopy or ultrasound training, that's not, not well known in the literature, but these are, there are people out there doing that. So it kind of, it sounds like it comes back to your wild west comment from earlier. (laughs) Yeah. And I agree. I think the people that would need, should be doing this are the pain doctors. I feel it's right up our alley, interventional spine, musculoskeletal health, orthopedic doctors, and sports medicine doctors. I feel like this is the, the territory that people that should be doing it. We're the ones seeing all the pain arthritis once they start failing those conservative measures. And that's usually the best time to do it when it's mild to moderate and not when it's severe and not when it's a complete structural instability. I'm curious from a practice management standpoint, how much, and I don't know if you've thought about this at all. I I always kind of go to the business side of things and think like, if I'm looking at my procedure mix, all the things I can do for a patient, this is serves a unique profile, not only in the type of actual procedure that it is and the level of invasiveness, which is less than surgery, say if we're doing that, looking at a sliding scale, but also it's got this, the, the payment component that's a little bit unique. It's, it's, it's got its own profile for the orthobiologic experience that a patient has and also the, for the physician. So in terms of like marketing and advertising and the way that a doctor might build their practice, have you thought at all about how this particular offering sort of fits into the, the grand scheme of what you're trying to do as a physician? Absolutely. So I think about it two ways. I herald this to Gerald Malanga in New Jersey, who's one of the pioneers and really 
helped grow this field to where it is today. I did a rotation with him several years ago, and he was the one that introduced me this concept of bridging the gap. What does that mean? So the bridging of the gap is we have all these treatments for knee pain prior to surgery. We'll start, okay, with, what is your exercise routine like? Are you going to physical therapy? Have you tried over-the-counter medication? And then the things that people don't like talking about of what's your sleep habits like? What are your dietary habits? Are you eating an inflammatory diet? What are you cross-training? Are you only doing one exercise? Are you giving your knee break? That kind of stuff. Are you losing weight? And then on top of that, then we start talking about injections such as steroid injections. Now that we know that steroid injections might be more cytotoxic to the cells in the knee, that might actually be making the knee pain better for a short period of time, but getting you to surgery faster. So the gap between that last knee injection and surgery is actually a big gap. That could be several years, but we don't really have anything to fill that gap. And now this orthobiologic world is what we try to think of filling the gap or bridging the gap. And then on the other side is I try to pinpoint athletes, CrossFit athletes, or even high school athletes that might've torn their ACL or have rotator cuff injuries in their shoulder, knowing from the literature that they're more likely to be predisposed to osteoarthritis at an earlier age. It's like, hey, let's take care of this now. So 10 years from now, you're not, hey, I have this click in my knee when they're still in their 40s or 50s. So that's what the two areas where I try to focus my care. Are there any other physician like practices or specialties that are sort of a natural uh, complement to this type of treatment? Or is it the same sort of like, I'll call the usual suspects of like finding family med physicians or chiropr- like the referral sources? Is Does this idea of this orthobiologic bridging the gap, is there a cohort of other care provider that would like access to that for their patients and can't currently offer it themselves? That's a tough, tough for me to answer. I think there's a lot of individual practitioners that believe in this philosophy that like, let's do the least invasive stuff first. Let's put off surgery as long as possible. Let's try to figure something out. And with that being said, what we try to do is find a good physiotherapist and physical therapist, manual therapist to work on these issues in the interim in between procedures. So say that you come in and you do have shoulder pain and you have rotator cuff care and you want to try one of these, almost 100% of my patients, I will send to physical therapy first with someone that I trust and I can communicate with a daily text message or phone call, let them know what the protocol is post-injection, and then get them right back into that provider after that healing cascade has started. Let's talk a little bit about sourcing orthobiologic supplies and equipment and what what is sort of the what's in the the toolbox so to speak of of a practitioner of these types of procedures so i think the easiest thing to start off with is just prolotherapy and the idea of prolotherapy is you get something that's a kind of an irritant to the tissue to try to cause a inflammatory cascade to try to help move out any painful mediators and try to help bring in mediators that are going to help grow. So for this, you know, people are just using something simple as like high dextrose solutions or hypertonic saline solutions and injecting them in the knee or around the knee or the ligaments and that kind of stuff. The efficacy of this is kind of hit or miss. We don't really know. 
it's kind of hard to put this up against placebo-controlled studies. And I have my own theory about placebo control because, in my opinion, normal saline is not a placebo. Normal saline causes reactions, can have a washout effect. It can cause an own inflammatory cascade in itself. So that's, you know, a whole separate talk for a whole separate day. (laughs) So that's usually what people start with. And that can be relatively cheap because the cost of equipment are cheap, et cetera, et cetera. Now we start talking about our own blood products or products that come from our body. So we, we start with PRP or platelet-rich plasma. Essentially, we're drawing off anywhere from 20 to 60 cc's of blood. So it's not a little bit, it's quite a bit. We spin that down in a centrifuge machine once, usually twice to get a better yield, take off the blood products we don't want and kind of hang on to the part of the plasma that has rich in platelets. Now the platelets will inject into whatever area that we feel needs the regeneration or the tissue support, I should say. We realized a while ago that the platelets have these alpha granules, and when they expose and they break open, they send out cascade to help bring in the mediators to cause an inflammatory reaction. So when I say that, it it does hurt. It's a painful reaction. That knee is hot. It's tender. It kind of feels not too great for a few days. And then after a few days, it starts dying down. And we don't feel pain relief right away. That pain relief starts coming over time in hopes that two years, three years, that it has sustained effects. So that's PRP. We can also use platelet pore plasma for different things. You know, we're not going to try to get too much into the literature, too much into the debates of that right now for today's purposes, but that's another whole conversation itself. The next step up, this alpha-2 macroglobulin, which is a protease inhibitor, also comes in the plasma. There's some studies that says it can restore cartilage. Again, that's more in vitro. We don't really know that in, in human bodies yet. And then going up from there is the bone marrow I talked about. We can kind of, we get that from the iliac crest and the posterior acid iliac crest, get a few, several different sites and spin that down a very similar way. And then the other one is the microfragmented fat. We get the fat from the abdomen, the thigh, the posterior hip, those areas that might have more fat cells, very similar to a liposuction procedure, but we're not taking off enough to consider liposuction. So no cosmetic effects, unfortunately. That's funny. So you don't get any, hey doc, could you take off a little extra while you're down there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You get that all the time. It's like, well, I could, but it'd be disproportionate and then this and that. So So the BMAC and the microfragment of that, they they don't, they are considered what uh, they say are mesochymal stem cells. Whether or not those have the mesochymal cell cells that cause the reaction or not, again, that's kind of a up for debate. A lot of people think it does. They do. In my opinion, it's the other surrounding peptides and proteins that are around that that kind of cause a cascade. And that should be said. Another whole thing: if you are advertising these on your website, do not use the word stem cells. The FDA is laying down the hammer hard on that, so people should be aware to to use these words as they are bone marrow concentrate, microfragment of fat. With that being said, so those are the, the homologous coming from our own tissues. Now we start talking about autologous tissues, umbilical cells, Wharton's jelly, different stuff like that. That is a whole separate field. And that's something that I would recommend to stay away from for lots, of, lots and lots of reasons, mainly because we don't know what those cells involve 
And when they're off the shelf like that, we start getting in a really gray area with the FDA. And the salespeople are very good at selling them to lots of physicians saying you're getting a high reimbursement and it's reimbursed by CMS. On 8-17-21, CMS and the Department of Justice put out a statement saying that they're coming down hard on pay, on practices that were getting reimbursed by CMS for this. So that's just a warning out there. If anyone is doing it, be careful. That's hot off the press, 817. And if there's a joint statement from CMS and the DOJ, you know you need to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I and they they were. They were charging four thousand or they're charging, you know, eighteen hundred dollars for a two CC injection. And these people mm-hmm. were reimbursing and you know, CMS like, hold up, what's going on here? Well, something's not right. Let's pause for a minute, Dr. Verma, and and because I think you covered a lot of good stuff. And I'm curious, you know, for a physician who's hearing all this, and maybe they're, you know, just wrapping up residency or they're doing a, a fellowship for pain management and they're interested in this area in particular. I'm curious to know either additional training or, you know, what is necessary or additional research and how do you get up to speed there? As well as, you know, you described PRP and you're spinning stuff down. Does that mean you have a centrifuge in your office? Is that another thing that you lease or is there, do you buy one of those or, and if you're doing, you know, bone marrow extraction, like, is there other hardware associated with, how does that work? And, you know, if someone wants to get from here to there, what is required in terms of training and equipment? Yeah. So uh, I think that's a great question. And, you know, it's obviously I'm super passionate about this. I've been following this for five plus years. I love to read about it. I love to talk about it. I'm very skeptical, but I want to do the, th- the right things. And that's why I'm skeptical. So to start off, I think the most important thing is to get your hands on the literature and realize what is level one evidence, what's level two evidence, and what's the best way to do that. I follow a handful of physicians that are really deep into this field. Dr. Jared Malanga I talked about, Dr. Chris Antenno. He kind of runs the Regenics program. Uh, uh, Dr. Tim Davis, Dr. Steve Sampson. He runs the ortho, the ortho Biologics Institute and a handful of other physicians that I'm really just in contact with. So that's where I would start, just kind of following them and what literature they put out. And then the second thing is these are the, these are the societies I follow too. So again, that's TOBI, which is the Ortho Biologics Institute. IOF is the International Ortho Biologics Foundation. And what's good about them is they do these great courses throughout the year and to get you trained in each specific body part. They do a basic and advanced for each body part. So not only are you talking with the instructors who've been doing this for many years, they've also really go really deep into each body part. So you're not just doing a weekend course or something along those lines. And I don't think you can get away with a weekend course. I think this takes a dedication of several years to really know what you're talking about. Step on top of that, uh, data, Data Biologics is a company that tries to accumulate solid data and make sure we're putting out the right data. They have a, their own database. You sign up to be one of the providers of the database, you upload your information, they kind of compile it. So that's really a good way to push the information in the right direction. Regenix we talked about, that's another company. They're kind of nationwide, have providers nationwide that kind of have different spots that do regenerative medicine. The ABIPP uh, came at American Board of Interventional Pain Physicians came out they do have an orthobiologics pathway now. So that's one of their licenses. It says you need about 30 hours of hands-on training 
and take a test and that kind of stuff. So it's starting to get more popular. There are a handful of fellowships out there that will that focus more on the regenerative side. Dr. Malanga has one in New Jersey, Dr. Centeno in Colorado, Dr. Borador in Napa Valley, several of them in California, several of them in Florida as well. So they're, they're out there. You just kind of have to go find them. They're not as public as an ACGM accredited fellowship. And then uh, you asked also about what equipment do you need? So I try to, I tend to trust uh, several of them. Uh, M-Site is a good one. Arthrex Systems is another, is a good, a couple good centrifuges. Typically, these companies will give you access to a centrifuge machine if you buy the kits from them. So it's kind of one of those deals that you're renting the machine from the company as long as you buy, buy the kits from them. And it's usually a decent enough deal for you to make your money back in a fair amount of time. With that being said, there's another company that approached me a few weeks ago, Plymouth Medical. They provide a handful of physicians and they kind of have everything under one roof when it comes to orthobiologics. So that might be a good place to start. The other cool thing about them is they have a database of all the literature. The clinical specialist is great. I met with her. She showed it to me. She actually shared it with me for this interview. So it's a fantastic resource, especially if you're getting started. Awesome. Well, this has been a, a wealth of information. So for anybody listening, thinking, holy cow, and they're furiously scribbling notes, go to APM Success slash 116. That's episode 116. And we're going to provide a comprehensive list of all of this, uh, all these great resources that Dr. Verma has shared. Is, is there anything else? I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, I think that's, that's at least a great starting off point. There are tons of other, I would probably just say snake oil people out there that are trying to get you to sign up for their conference and go learn their ways. I tend to be hesitant for those individuals because of the several factors that we talked about today. Are there any other, as you think about sort of general advice, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up with this, are there any other general words of wisdom, companies you like or you want to avoid or any great experiences you've had that have really sort of solidified your enthusiasm for these types of things? So yeah, two things that uh, I really encourage people. The first thing would be really, if you're interested in this field, to do the studies and get with people that are doing the high level clinical research. We know what these things work for. We know kind of how they work, but until we get these high level clinical data, it's still going to be the wild west and we really want to sift through. And I think the second thing is just really be ethical about it. You know, this shouldn't be, oh, I can do PRP and make a thousand dollars off each patient I do a PRP. It's no, you should just think about it more as a continuation of your pathway of care. Where does this fall in my algorithm and how can I help someone out? And I think those clinical outcomes will end up speaking for themselves if you're selecting the right patient. And we just don't treat one, one section. So say someone comes in with knee pain, it, it's worth it to do the full clinical exam. You know, it's not just knee osteoarthritis. There might be a meniscal damage. There might be ligamentum laxity. There might be even some tendonitis or tendinopathy. So that's the importance of doing your physical exam, getting the imaging study, being skilled in ultrasound and fluoroscopy to not just treat one area, but treat everything that's actually being compromised. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Verma, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Appreciate you lending your time and expertise to the APM Success Podcast. Awesome, man. I think I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. And hopefully if anyone has more questions, you can reach out. We'll put my information out there for you too. Yep. We'll include that in the show notes. Thank you. Great. Have a good day. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com 
where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.